The scripture lesson today comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 27. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seeds of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days, they shall no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but all shall die for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. In the last six weeks, I have ridden on six different airplanes. Each time, the gate agent announced, This will be a completely full flight. Every seat will be taken. In many ways, it appears that life is back to normal. The question is, are we going to simply return to our pre-pandemic way of life? Or are we somehow changed? A dear friend of mine feels certain that our society will simply slip back into the frantic pace that we lived in prior to March of 2020. Families, she says, feel the pressure to keep up with the Joneses. They will replace those leisurely family dinners around the kitchen table with drive through dinners in a bag. They will replace weekly worship with weekly trips to the lake, she says. They will replace spontaneous family game nights with organized baseball and soccer leagues. They will replace service projects for the sick and the hungry with movies and parties. Well, that's what my friend thinks. What do you think? Has the last year and a half changed us in any way? Are we any wiser to the ways of God, the ways of faith, the ways of compassion? Or are we just the same old people that we were before? People in biblical times asked this same question. The prophets sought to answer this very question. Today is week two in our four-part series on the prophets, and we've called this four-part series on the prophets God's hope. Now, people get confused about the prophets. Some people think the prophets were about predicting the future. What will happen next? But really, who can predict the future? Mostly, the prophets were describing the current situation, the despair of the people, the tear in the fabric of society, and asking the question, where is God in all of this? Now, other people think that the prophets were about scolding the people, 
Mike's text from last week is a good example of why the prophets sometimes sound like they're scolding us. I hate your festivals, we hear in Amos. Or from the prophet Micah, we hear, God does not require of you to bring burnt offerings, but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God. Oftentimes, I just want to ignore the prophets because they sound judgmental and they seem to be always shaking a finger at us. If you had just done what God had asked of you, you wouldn't be in this mess. But modern scholar Walter Brueggemann suggests that both of these stereotypes of the prophets are misguided. Instead of nagging us to do better, or warning us about the future mess that we are getting ourselves into, what the prophets are actually doing is imagining the world as God longs for it to be. Today, we read from one of my favorite prophets, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes around the time of the exile, which has just ended, and the people are just beginning to return to life as they once knew it. Many of them had been sent away to live in Babylon, where they lost their homes, their temple, their business, their family, their friendship ties, so much loss. But now the king has decreed that they can come home. They can rebuild, replant, renew. Key to their way of life throughout all of this has been to keep God's commandments. You know the ones. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, keep the Sabbath holy, honor your father and mother. These were the laws that made life good for them. During the exile, many had ceased to keep the law of God. Now they are coming home. The prophet reminds them that the laws of God were given to them to guide their hearts. When the commandments were given to them in the first place, the book of Deuteronomy said, Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. And now, as they return from exile and sorrow, they are told, told God will write this law on your heart. Here is what God imagines. God's law of love written on the heart of the whole community. Now, there's two things to pay attention to here. The word right in Hebrew really means engraved. The law of God, the way of God, is meant to be engraved on their hearts. But the second thing to note is that in Hebrew, the law is not written on individual hearts, on Dave's heart, on Mary's heart, on, on Justin's heart, on Carla's heart. No, in Hebrew, it is on the heart of the whole community, written on your heart, on y'all, as we would say in Texas. God resolves to shape this community in God's image, to brand them with the sign that reveals that they are God's people. Can it be that after the exile, they will be changed, that they will live as those whom God has engraved love on the heart of the whole people? Can it be that people like us coming out of pandemic 
can imagine that our future, too, can be different. Sometimes God's law of love feels like just a set of words on the page instead of a word engraved on the heart of our shared community. We know that sometimes all of us can spout out what it is that God wants, but we can't seem to live the way that God imagines our lives together should go. Last week, my husband Dave and I had the joy of taking our two granddaughters, ages 10 and 8, to Hawaii. We visited relatives who live on the Air Force Base at Pearl Harbor, and we spent time exploring the whole island of Oahu. Now, like all children, my granddaughters, Ava and Ella, have been raised to treat children with special needs with the respect and dignity that we all know special needs children deserve. But my granddaughters know something personal about special needs because their six-year-old brother has autism and is mostly nonverbal. He could never go on a plane trip to Hawaii. One evening late in the trip, I was in a cab with my granddaughters. We were driving along the coastline as the sun was setting, and we were just ooing and awing at the gorgeous landscape. Look at those flowering trees. Look at the waterfall. Oh, the sparkle, the blue of the water, the white sand. And I said to my granddaughters, girls, maybe when you grow up, one of you will decide to get married in Hawaii, and your grandfather and I will be able to come here with you again. And without missing a beat, the youngest granddaughter said to me, no, neither of us will get married here because this is far too far away for our brother to ever fly, and we would never want to have our wedding in a place where Jacob couldn't be. Written on their hearts, the love and respect and consideration for their brother with special needs is deeply ingrained in their lives engraved on the heart. While in Hawaii, my nephew, General Helwig, gave us a tour of the United States ships that were bombed on December 7, 1941, during the attack on Pearl Harbor. He showed us where the ammunition had punctured the sidewalks and scarred the buildings. And finally, we went to the museum that sits atop the USS Arizona in the harbor. You can stand in this museum and peer down into the water and see the ship where thousands of soldiers died. And in the memorial, there is a marble wall of names of those whose lives were lost and are now buried underneath where you stand in the water. It, it's, it's breathtaking. But what really got to me is that at the moment that the bombing happened, there were some soldiers who were not on the ship. Maybe they had gone onto the land to fill a prescription or go to worship or see the dentist or purchase supplies. We're not sure, but some of them weren't there, and they did not perish. They lived. But the military gave these soldiers the option upon their death many years later 
to have their ashes return to the ocean. And you can see video of divers taking the capsule underwater to lay a soldier to rest alongside his fallen comrades. And beneath the marble wall of names, there are two small marble boxes where the names of their comrades are etched when they were buried. One died only in 2019. I sat there looking at those names, wondering what would compel a soldier to return 50 or 70 years later to be laid to rest alongside his comrades. Something of love and loyalty had to have been written on their hearts. What happened that day could not be undone. The life-changing events of World War II were engraved upon them. None of us really knows how this pandemic has shaped us. Some of us have lost friends, others jobs, some lost a parent or a grandparent, others lost a year or more of school. Some of us had emotional setbacks, depression, anxiety. Something shifted in us. But what will be the lasting impression? What is forever engraved upon us? Will we be more grateful, more appreciative, more peaceful, more attuned to the needs of our neighbors? Are we capable of reaching back to what matters most, to reconnecting our hearts with the heart of God? What do you think? Will we change? Or will we be the same old people that we were before? The prophet Jeremiah makes no promises and no predictions about what human beings will do after the crisis. But Jeremiah writes twice in today's scripture, the days are surely coming. The days are surely coming when God will make a new covenant, when God will sow the seed of human beings and build a new human community. Jeremiah can clearly see that the covenant God made with God's people in the past was based on the people behaving as God's people. But Jeremiah can clearly see that human beings broke the covenant. We did not keep up our end of the bargain. We messed up. So the shift that the prophet announces is a shift in the very heart of God. God forgives them for all the times that they have turned away from their relationship with God. The prophet Jeremiah announces the same love that Jesus announces, that God comes and finds us, that God is a real character in the unfolding drama of this life. When all looks lost, God engraves God's love upon us so that it can never, ever, ever be removed from us. Our only hope is that God will never stop loving us, never stop participating in our lives, never stop claiming all of us 
as God's very own beloved people. No one can predict the future. A few months ago, we had a Zoom class with a leading historian in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, Dr. Newell Williams, president of Bright Divinity School at Texas Christian University, taught us a bit about our own Disciples of Christ history so that during our centennial as a church, we can know how our story fits into the larger story. In that class, there was a question and answer session, and someone asked him, could, could you predict what what will happen next? Will Protestant Christianity ever grow again? We all know that it's been shrinking incrementally for decades, but will it, will it ever grow again? And he said, well, I'm a historian. I look at the past. I don't know. But then he said something I had never heard. He said that during the Revolutionary War in this country, the church suffered. Pastors couldn't preach. They were off fighting the British in battle. And those who were left at home were so worried about the issues of war and politics that no one had any energy left for the work of the church. It seemed to everyone that religion was passing away. And when the war ended, the war heroes were not very enthusiastic about the scriptures. Thomas Jefferson even cut with scissors the parts of the Bible he didn't care for, removed them. There were folks at that time, at the end of the Revolutionary War, who were very worried that the church would simply go away. Barton Stone, a founder of the Disciples of Christ movement, said that the church was disappearing, both in substance and appearance. Only about 35% of Americans held any church affiliation. Only 35%. But then, something that no one could have imagined happened. A great revival of Christianity happened, especially with the westward expansion of the United States. And by mid-century, 75% of Americans identified with the church. It was a resurgence of the kind only God might dare, hope for, dream about, imagine. And it happened because some young students got together on college campuses and participated in a great revival of God's law of love written onto the hearts of the people. What do you think? Dare we believe? that God can claim us, can write upon us a future of love.